Chapter Twenty Four of Stories of Old Greece and Rome by Emily Kip Baker. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Four Hercules, Part Two. One of the most difficult of Hercules's labours was to procure the golden apples that the Hesperides, daughters of Hesperus, god of the west, guarded very jealously. At the foot of the tree coiled a fierce dragon, whose nostrils poured out fire, and whose deadly breath would have slain any venturesome robber, even if he had escaped the dragon's claws. As Hercules did not know in what part of the great glowing west the garden of the Hesperides lay, he wandered many miles before he met with any one who could direct him where to go. The first help he received was from the nymphs of the Eridanus River, who were sporting on the river bank and called to Hercules to come and join in their games. Much as he would have liked to rest, the hero dared not tarry, but he begged the friendly nymphs to tell him the way to the garden of the Hesperides. They could not help him, but they advised him to go to old Proteus, the Ancient of the Deep, who could tell him whatever he wished to know better than any one else. So Hercules went down to the seashore, and found the hoary god asleep in his cool green cave. Knowing the old man's wiles, the hero grasped him firmly, and held him fast through all the bewildering changes by which he sought to frighten away the stranger. At last, finding himself securely caught, the wizard assumed his own form, and asked Hercules what it was that he wished to know. The hero stated his errand, and Proteus told him, in words that ne'er deceive, that he must find the giant Atlas, who alone knew where the garden of the Hesperides lay. Hercules then started again on his search, and in the course of his journey came to the Caucasus Mountains, where he found Prometheus, the stealer of the sacred fire, bound with adamantine chains to the rock where a vulture daily feasted on his liver. Hercules killed the foul bird, broke the chains, and set Prometheus free, and in return for his deliverance the grateful Titan directed his rescuer where to find the giant Atlas. Following Prometheus's advice, Hercules travelled straightway to Africa, and on the way he passed through the land of the Pygmies, a tiny race of warriors who waged continual warfare with neighbouring tribes, and especially with their deadly enemies, the Cranes. Hercules was not aware that he had reached the country of the Pygmies, but one day, when he had fallen asleep from weariness, he was wakened by sharp prickings over his body, and looking around he saw a host of diminutive men attacking him with their tiny weapons. The hero laughed at these brave efforts, caught up a few of the doughty little warriors, and wrapping them in his lion-skin, carried them back with him to the court of Eurystheus. As he journeyed through Africa in search of Atlas, Hercules came to the country of Antaeus, a mighty giant and wrestler, and the son of Terra, the earth. All strangers who came into the land were obliged to wrestle with him, and if they were defeated, they were immediately killed. As no one had ever overcome Antaeus, he had brought an untimely death on many a brave hero, so Hercules was eager to defeat him and avenge the unknown dead. As soon as they had grappled for the first struggle, the slayer of the Hydra knew that he had met more than his equal in strength. For a long time they wrestled, Antaeus growing stronger after each fall, and Hercules growing fainter from every additional blow of the giant's hand. Again and again the undaunted hero threw his adversary to the ground, but Antaeus rose with redoubled vigour, and continued the unequal contest. 
Then, all at once, Hercules remembered the tale he had once heard of a giant who drew strength from his mother Earth, and believing that this was the case with Antaeus, he made a mighty effort and lifted the giant from the ground. Antaeus struggled to get his feet again on the earth, but Hercules kept him in the air and held him there until he felt the powerful body beginning to weaken. Little by little the miraculous strength oozed away, and soon Antaeus grew so weak that Hercules easily crushed the limp form with his hands. The hero then travelled on in search of Atlas, whom he finally found standing on the coast of Africa, with the great weight of the heavens resting on his broad shoulders. As Hercules looked up at the enormous figure, which reached so far into the clouds that nothing could be seen above his waist, he noticed that the forest had grown up so thick and tall all around that only a glimpse of the giant's huge legs could be seen through the heavy foliage. As the hero stood watching this figure, that for centuries had stood there in obedience to the divine command of Jupiter, he saw dark clouds beginning to gather about the giant's head, and soon a storm broke over the sea and land. Amid the beating of the rain and the crash of the thunder, Hercules thought he heard the voice of Atlas speaking to him, but it might have been only a peal of thunder. When the storm was over and the mists rolled away from the earth, Hercules saw the head of Atlas through rifts in the scurrying clouds. The snow-white hair gave the giant's face a benign look as it fell thick and white over the stooping shoulders that bore so terrible a weight. In a voice that he strove hard to make gentle, Atlas asked the hero what he was seeking, and Hercules told him that he had come to get some of the golden apples from the garden of the Hesperides. Atlas laughed at these words, and his great shoulders shook so with merriment that a few of the stars fell out of their places. Then he told Hercules that such a feat was impossible, even to so great a hero, but that if some one would take the heavens from his shoulders for a few hours, he himself would get the apples. Hercules was delighted with this offer of assistance, and agreed to take the giant's burden, while the latter went on his friendly errand. Very carefully Atlas transferred the heavens to the shoulders of Hercules, and then sped westward to the garden of the Hesperides. The hero was a bit troubled when he saw Atlas shake his huge shoulders, and stretch himself in delight at his freedom, for it would be strange indeed if the giant were ready to resume his burden, after having tasted the joy of liberty. With some anxiety, Hercules watched him step into the sea that came only to his knees, though he had waded out a mile from the shore. As Atlas went deeper and deeper into the waves, at first his huge bulk loomed like a cliff against the horizon, but soon it dwindled into a mere speck, and was presently lost to view. How long he stood holding the heavens, Hercules never knew, but he found himself growing very weary of his burden and anxious over Atlas's long absence. Suddenly he saw a dark spot on the horizon, and he knew that it was the giant returning. It had not been a difficult task for Atlas to reach the garden, or to pluck the golden apples from the carefully guarded tree, and Hercules, delighted with the giant's success, thanked him for his trouble, and asked him politely to take the sky again onto his shoulders, for the journey back to the court of Eurystheus was a long one. Now Atlas had no desire to stand for another dozen centuries with his old burden, and seeing a good opportunity of getting rid of it for ever, he told Hercules that he would carry the apples to Eurystheus himself, and meanwhile the hero could keep the heavens supported until Atlas returned. Pretending that he was quite satisfied with this arrangement, Hercules bade the giant good-bye, then 
hastily asked him to wait a moment while he made a pad for his shoulders to ease the weight of the unaccustomed burden. The unsuspicious giant good-naturedly agreed to this, and took the heavens from Hercules. But instead of making a cushion, the hero picked up the golden apples, which Atlas had dropped on resuming his burden, and started back to his own country, leaving the giant to stand on the seashore for ever, or until the pitying gods should release him. The twelfth and last labour of Hercules was to bring from Hades the three-headed dog Cerberus. With the help of Mercury and Minerva, he descended into the dread realm of Pluto, and begged that grim monarch to let him take Cerberus into the upper world. Pluto was not willing at first to lose the guardian of his gates, even for a short time, but at length he consented to let Hercules do as he desired, on condition that Cerberus should not be bound or any weapons used upon him. So the fierce three-headed creature was carried, snarling and struggling, in the hero's strong arms, and when the pair approached the throne of Eurystheus, the horror-struck monarch implored Hercules to take the monster back as quickly as possible, for the sight of its dripping jaws, from which oozed the deadly nightshade, so terrified Eurystheus that he sought refuge in a huge jar, and would not come out until his courtiers assured him that Cerberus was safely out of the country. When the twelve labours were ended, Hercules' term of service to the court of Eurystheus was over, and he was free to wander where he willed. He spent many years roaming through various lands, and assisting other heroes, who, like himself, were in search of adventures. He took part in the battle between the Centaurs and Lapithae, joined in the Argonautic expedition, organised the first siege of Troy, and braved the terrors of Hades to bring Alcestis back to her repentant husband. The expedition against Troy was one of revenge, for the false Laomedon had never paid the gold that he had promised for the release of his daughter Hesione from the sea-monster and Hercules now set out to punish the treacherous king. So he sailed for Troy with eighteen ships, and the city fell into his hands, but with little resistance. Laomedon was killed, his son Priam placed on the throne of Troy, and Hesione given in marriage to Telamon, one of the Greeks who accompanied Hercules. The hero's splendid career received a check, however, for in a quarrel he killed his friend Ipitus, and the gods, angry at this unnecessary bloodshed, compelled him to go once more into bondage. So for three years Hercules served Ompale, Queen of Lydia, and during this time he lived very effeminately, wearing sometimes the dress of a woman, and spinning wool with the handmaidens of Ompale, while the Queen wore his lion's skin and wielded his renowned club. When his years of servitude were over, he set out again on his wanderings, and during one of his journeys he met the beautiful Deianeira, daughter of Aeonus and Caledon, and sister of Meliaga, famous in the Caledonian hunt. Hercules immediately sought the maiden's hand in marriage, but she had another suitor, the river-god Achaeolus, who had already obtained her father's consent. Deianeira, however, much preferred her new lover, and begged him to free her from the betrothal with Achaeolus. So Hercules challenged the river-god to a wrestling match, the conditions of the contest being that he who won should have the maiden in marriage. Achaeolus readily agreed to this way of settling their rival pretensions, for he had no doubt as to the result of the wrestling. The opponents were well matched as to strength, but the river-god had one great advantage, for he could assume any form he pleased, and thus bewilder any one who tried to grapple with him. Among his many changes he took the form of a serpent, but when Hercules grasped it by the neck and was about to strangle it, Achaeolus became a bull, and rushed at the hero with lowered horns. 
skilfully eluding this unexpected attack hercules seized the bull by one horn and held on so firmly that when the creature tried to wrench himself free the horn broke this decided the victory in favour of hercules and achaeolus departed sullenly to his bed in the river the broken horn was appropriated by fortuna the goddess of plenty who filled it with her treasures and adopted it thenceforth as her symbol calling it cornucopia there was nothing now to hinder the marriage of hercules with deanira and the wedding took place with much mirth and feasting after several days of festivity hercules departed with his wife and in the course of their journey homeward they came to the river evenus which had grown so swollen and turbid from the heavy rains that it was impossible to ford it as the travellers stood helpless on the bank the centaur nessus came galloping up to them and offered to carry deanira across the river in safety grateful for this timely assistance hercules placed his wife on the back of the centaur who swam with her through the swift-flowing stream when they reached the opposite bank deanira expected the centaur to stop that she might dismount but nessus set off at a brisk trot hoping to kidnap his fair rider before her husband could overtake them hercules heard the cries of his terrified bride and as soon as he swam the river he sent a swift arrow after the treacherous nessus the poisoned tip sank deep into the centaur's side and he knew at once that he had received his death wound with a pretence at repentance he asked deanira to forgive his rash deed and then as if granting her a favour he told her to take his robe which was stained with blood and keep it carefully for it had wonderful properties he assured her that if the time ever came that hercules love grew cold she had only to persuade him to put on this magic robe and his devotion to her would become more ardent than ever before deanira took the robe but said nothing to her husband of the centaur's gift hoping that she would never have to make use of it for many years hercules and his wife lived happily together for although the hero went on other adventures he was always eager to return to deanira and she had no need to be reminded of the centaur's gift on one of his expeditions however he brought back with him a fair maiden named Iole, of whom his wife soon grew to be extremely jealous not longer after the arrival of Iole, hercules wished to offer sacrifices to the gods in honour of his safe return so he sent to deanira for a suitable robe his wife trembling for the success of her venture bade the messenger lycas carry to hercules the magic robe of nessus which she had carefully guarded all these years the hero not knowing the history of the fatal garment threw it over his shoulders and as soon as it touched his flesh the poisoned blood began its deadly work the body of hercules burned suddenly as if on fire and agonizing pains convulsed his frame he tried to unloose the fatal robe but it clung to his skin and he tore off part of his flesh in trying to set himself free in his rage and pain he turned upon lycas the unhappy bearer of the poisoned robe and seizing him in his still powerful arms flung him into the sea from the top of mount eta where they had assembled for the sacrifices then the hero tore up huge oak trees by their roots and built a lofty funeral pyre on which he stretched his pain-racked limbs calmly he bade his servants apply the torch but no one was willing to do this even to ease his sufferings so hercules turned to his friend philosotes and after giving him the poisoned arrows begged him in pity to light the funeral pyre the youth placed beside hercules the hero's famous oak club and covered his body with the lion's skin then he applied a torch to the wood 
and the flames rose with a roar and crackling into the skies. But only the mortal part of the hero perished, for Jupiter would not allow the divinity that he had bestowed upon Hercules to suffer extinction. Purged of his mortality, the hero took his place in high Olympus, and even revengeful Juno was so reconciled to his presence that she gave him her daughter Hebe in marriage. End of chapter 24